This is Energy Solutions, a podcast from the Electric Power Supply Association, where we unpack the stories and trends behind America's changing electric grid. I'm your host, Todd Snitchler, EPSA's president and CEO. Local, state, and federal policymakers across the country are examining pathways available to meet ambitious climate goals. Understanding what structure will produce the greatest emissions reductions at the lowest cost while ensuring grid reliability is essential to devising effective decarbonization policy. Ensuring a just transition means more than providing cleaner energy. It must contemplate where that energy is located and the disproportionate energy burden being shouldered by those who can least afford it. Moreover, how do we ensure that the energy transition ensures reliability and improves our country's energy resilience? EPSA examined these issues during our inaugural Competitive Power Summit earlier this year. We know the benefits that competitive markets yield in terms of lowering emissions in a reliable and economic manner. As consumers of all types are demanding more clean energy, we know competitive markets will meet the challenge. But we also need to ensure that the grid is prepared and designed to handle the changing demand and operations that come with a different set of resources. As we face the daunting challenge of the energy transition, let's examine some of the perspectives shared during the summit, first focusing on how to enable decarbonization and properly incentivize the necessary investment for our future. Our first panelist, Gordon Van Wheelie, President and CEO of ISO New England, spoke to us about how the conversation around prioritizing reliability is often misunderstood and shared his perspective on the four pillars necessary for a successful clean energy transition. It's striking to me that the new theme for the moment, I think, with EPSA is reliability is job number one. I've always viewed that as our job at the ISO as well. So that theme resonates with me. The problem is how do you have a conversation about reliability and have people actually listen to you? And because I recognize that certainly in our region, often when we say the words reliability, it gets interpreted as we're somehow resistant to the clean energy transition. And so I think we have to have a holistic conversation, and hence the four pillars. And the four pillars was my engineering-oriented way of trying to describe what has to be done in order to have a successful clean energy transition. And the successful clean energy transition, in my view, embodies reliability, because society is not going to be prepared to have electricity rationed for extended periods of time. We see the outcomes and the violent reactions. So we make it very complicated because we all live in this industry and it is a complicated industry, but really when you think about the grid, it's fairly simple. It's a collection of wires and a bunch of devices for converting energy inputs into electricity outputs. And it's as simple as that. And if our wholesale market structures and the various regulatory processes we have around that structure don't give us the four pillars of equal strength, something's going to break down and we're going to have adverse outcomes. So the four pillars really are, in the context of moving us into a world where we depend on renewable energy, we obviously need lots more devices that can convert sunshine and wind into electricity, right? So that's what the states are primarily focused on. But the problem is you can't just focus on that silo to the exclusion of everything else. You need transmission. And you hear people talking about that, and it's hard to get transmission built, but we're never going to scale the system up if we don't build the transmission. We need a robust market structure for paying for the balancing resources. And then finally, the thing that I've introduced and deliberately decoupled from the generation component here, the balancing resource component, is the need for energy adequacy. We need some kind of energy reserve in the system. 
And I came to that really through how do I explain this to lay people in terms of what's needed in order to ensure reliability. And if you're going to run a system where the bulk of the energy is going to come from the sun and the wind and is inherently unpredictable, you've got to have some other energy source that's stable to be able to support that. And you, of course, have to run it through some generators to produce electricity, but it has to be stabilized. And I think in New England, the big problem we've got is all of it's unstable, with a few minor exceptions. And so that's a big problem. So your question, Brian, is how do we apply markets to all of this? There are markets in the form of markets that utilize uniform clearing price auctions and marginal pricing, and I think those apply very well to attracting the capital needed to provide the balancing resources. And I think they can also be modified to attract the renewable technologies as well. And we'll talk more about that on this panel in terms of how do you get the environmental objective into the market. Most economists will tell you if you don't put the externalities into the market design and you don't take into account the supply side frictions, your market's not going to work. And I think we see the stresses and strains as a result of that. What is striking about Gordon's commentary is that it demonstrates the unique balance the system must achieve. If one of the pillars he notes is prioritized and another is left unattended, the system will not be able to thrive. It highlights concerns that policymakers so often look at components of a well-functioning grid in a silo when it must be viewed holistically. As our next panelist demonstrates, that holistic examination must now also include a variety of new concerns that specific energy technologies bring to system planning. Jill Davies, Senior Vice President of Trading of Shell Energy Americas, talked with us about these issues and how we need to ensure reliability in these changing circumstances. The market design that we have now was really intended to promote competition and drive down price for consumers. And now we have a different challenge. In the past, no one cared where their energy was coming from. Now it's extremely important. And we've talked about technology a little bit so far today. And probably a lot of people in this room know how many steps they took, what their heart rate is, how many hours of sleep they got. Everyone is so in tune. Consumers are so in tune and have so much access to energy now. They care about supply chain. They care about who's making the goods, where the goods are coming from. So everything has changed in our market. A big passion of mine is around the role that natural gas will play in the energy transition. And I'm extremely frustrated about the kind of demonization of fossil fuels and in particular of gas when we really need something that we can rely on when there is no hydro and no wind and no sun. But the challenge is really how to make people understand that when they simply won't accept a lack of power in their homes. And we don't want to get to the point where we're rationing power and asking our, our industries to turn off. So I think the people that really need the recognition and the help and the reward is really at the RTOs and the ISOs. The staff that is grappling with this challenge every day to try to keep the system balanced, and it's only going to get worse. We've talked about that. We have already had two major weather events with the heat dome in California and with the Texas weather event last February. Managing a system when your baseload has gone away and the energy sources that you have are now variable and they might not even be in the right place. I think that what we really need now is innovation and technology to step in to help us do a better job of forecasting. And the role of planning, I think, is going to be critical going forward to understand how cities will grow, where will the load be, how will we stress test our systems with climate change, 
you know, the stress test of the past, maybe plus or minus 10% is ludicrous going forward with some of the energy demands that we've seen in these um, extreme weather events. Another major component for our energy markets to continue to evolve in a manner that meets the expectation of customers and the ambitious climate goals of policymakers is investment. Private investment is crucial to our ability to enable the energy transition in a manner that does not unfairly burden customers, especially when we are in an uncertain economy and perhaps even headed towards a recession. Our next panelist, Stephen Gallagher, Chief Commercial Officer of Brookfield Renewables U.S., details what is necessary for investors to double down on their energy investments. This is not going to come as a shock to anybody in this room, but I would say, look, fundamentally, when you're talking about the quantum of capital that we need to deploy, I'd say just regulatory stability. So again, look, having, when you're looking to make these investments, you're looking for a risk-adjusted return, but just having a stable framework, a stable market framework within which to work. Like we can, capital is fungible, so it can move from geography to geography. But here, when you're looking to attract and you're looking to deploy it and you're looking to build out these projects, just knowing what the landscape is in front of you. And we can quantify the linear risks. You 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 can adjust your pricing, you can look at your assumptions, but we just can't take the binary risk outcomes. I mean, that's it. It's not reinventing the wheel per se. I would say just a stable regulatory environment that gives you a clean pathway so you can assess the investment opportunity like some of the projects we're doing so the projects <coughs> we're looking at against three five seven year lead times so trying to make a decision today on not knowing what the environment's going to look like in three or five years time when you come to bring the project online that is a hurdle for capital investment gordon responded to stephen's commentary regarding regulatory certainty from a planner's perspective noting that carbon pricing would be the most efficient way to address the energy transition, yet we know that it remains politically challenging. Yeah, I'm struck by your comment with regard to regulatory certainty, and that's a live conversation within New England at the moment, and around how do you attract all the new renewables into the marketplace, and do we continue on the path that we're on, which has been essentially sort of state-by-state power purchase agreements really driven by the legislature. We were asked to study this a year or so back, and we've just released a report called the Pathways Report that looks at the status quo, it looks at net carbon pricing, something called the forward clean energy market, and then a hybrid of net carbon pricing in the forward clean energy market. So what's interesting about that study is it shows the status quo is by far the most expensive path forward Mm. and the most inefficient as well. It creates all kinds of adverse impacts in the electricity markets. It creates churn with regard to storage. You end up having more storage deployed in order to allow renewables to capture various clean energy attributes. And so an inefficient build out of storage as an example. And so uh, interestingly enough, Net carbon pricing is the most efficient way of doing this. I don't know that there's a political tolerance to place all the bets on carbon pricing in England (laughs) is the problem. And so my instinct is we may be asked to study some form of hybrid, which was explicitly injected into the study process by some of the New England states, because this is this interesting realization that now has occurred, which is What I said earlier on about having the wholesale markets trend from amber to red has to do with one of the artifacts in that study, which shows that we eventually, in the space of a decade or so, start driving the region into average negative LMPs. That's going to 
wreck the markets if that's what happens, and it's not going to work. It'll require a massive restructuring of the market. Uh, I agree that the elements of the market design we have in place today are the right elements. The problem is how do you make them work? And so I think there's a recognition that we can't go further in terms of losing the nuclear capacity in New England. If you speak to any of the owners of the existing renewables, you being one of them (laughs) in New England, they would say, we can't survive on negative LMPs either. As the states grapple with that reality, I think there's some empathy starting to develop towards perhaps we need to put a carbon price into the Mm. electricity markets. It's probably not the right place to do it. The right place to do it is in REGI or in some national scheme, but both of those are not really politically feasible at this point. So the next best is to put it into the ISO markets, and we're going to need to have the states tell us what number they want. But I think you could also reverse engineer a number which says what's the number you need to put into the energy dispatch in order to maintain reliability? pay for the nukes, pay for the existing renewables, give a bigger incentive to the combined cycle owners to slowly start decarbonizing their fuel source. So I think there's all kinds of goodness that comes out of that. And then the question is, well, should one go so far as to put the full decarbonization objective into the wholesale electricity market or not? And I just mentioned a moment ago, it's probably politically not feasible. So then you're left with this additional gap that you need to close in order to drive investment in additional renewables. And there's another interesting tension that's developed in New England, which is the transmission owners don't like the idea of all these PPAs being on their balance sheet. So that is a reality that the region has to grapple with as well. And hence the appetite, I think, for other mechanisms like the four clean energy market. So we had a very interesting juncture in this conversation in New England. And then the other companion piece to this is the states asked us to do a transmission plan to sketch out what the transmission system should look like by 2050 in order to decarbonize. And it's a ginormous task. I mean, we've just released a study that shows by 2050, our existing system will 50% of the lines in New England will be overloaded. And it's not surprising. I mean, we have to, at the moment, our winter peak is 20, 22,000 megawatts. The 2050 plan shows that we'll be close to 60 gigawatts. So you've got to scale the system up. You've got to at least double or treble its ability to meet the peak demand. So it should be no surprise that we're going to need massive amounts of investment in the transmission system. And we're not even looking at what has to happen at the distribution level. And you can't just scale the transmission system up and think that somehow magically we're going to microwave the energy to everybody in New England. <laughs> it's going to have to be carried through the distribution system. So there's many hundreds of billions of dollars, I think, of investment required on the transmission end. And so I think the study process is starting to illuminate these issues, which I hope will lead to ultimately actions that can be taken that will give you the regulatory certainty. Gordon's commentary highlights more of the holistic planning that policymakers and regulators must contemplate for this energy transition. It's not enough to just look at incentivizing cleaner generation or adjusting the market dynamics to prepare for the change in resources. You have to look at the whole energy delivery system, including transmission and distribution, and how those elements enhance reliability, keep costs in check, and facilitate emissions reductions. John Moore, Senior Attorney and Director of the Sustainable FERC Project from the Natural Resources Defense Council, addresses the level of understanding necessary for federal policymakers grappling with these decisions and how the patchwork of state climate policies plays into that calculation. I wanted to amplify just two things Jill said. We don't agree on everything, I'm sure, but two things she said I think are critically important. One, the education piece. 
I think we all are stunned on a near daily basis over the real incomplete level of understanding that policymakers, regulators, legislators all have about how the grid works and what the implications are for the future, having made at a state level, for example, commitments, serious clean energy commitments in lots of respects, and then not knowing what that ultimately means for consumers. What's the real price? It's very hard for anyone to get a number around the price, for example. No one knows what a billion dollars feels like unless you're a developer. The people in the room here have a much better grasp of that than regulators and policymakers. Believe me, I see this every day. And so I think the education piece is important. And then also there has to be more state cooperation, whether or not it's in the form of a carbon price or in recognizing the value of transmission to help meet state renewable energy and other goals along with resource adequacy. I know this group is mostly interested in the Eastern markets, but issues like capacity accreditation and resource adequacy are just gonna become more and more important in MISO and SPP and other new regions in the future as there's more and more of these resources are differently correlated, they're outside of state boundaries, et cetera. So I think states working together, simplifying products, simplifying the number of local mandates, looking to the markets to meet more of firm resource needs, understanding the value in that, you know, that's got to be a change. Our final panelist for the session was Arnie Olson, Senior Partner at Energy Environmental Economics, who touches directly on how crucial it is that policymakers get this combination right. The energy transition is the key pathway to an economy-wide decarbonization strategy. And if we don't keep a close eye on the end cost to consumers, we won't meet our environmental goals, full stop. I wanted to make sure that at some point in the panel today that we highlighted the really critical role of this sector in helping to meet our economy-wide net zero goals, not just in cleaning up our own house, but the entire economy, electrifying end uses, doubling our peak load, as Gordon said, we have to get this right. And literally the fate of the world depends on us getting this right. It's an enormous job that we have ahead of us. We have to make sure that our systems are well set up, our engineering is done well, our financing is done well, we have financially healthy companies. We need, and we all need to be pushed in, together in the, in the same direction. And one of the elements of the economy-wide plan is electrification of end uses that currently use fossil fuels in other sectors. It's really consumer uptake of electrified technologies, electric cars, electric heat pumps, and others. And in order for that to happen, we have to do all of this, $150 trillion worth of investment, while keeping our electric rates reasonable so that it's an attractive proposition for consumers to adopt these new technologies. So that's the needle that we have to thread. And I would suggest that we really have to be mindful of the bigger challenge as we think through all of the various ways to implement clean energy and make sure that we're doing that as absolutely efficiently as we can and with our eye directly on the, the bottom line and what it means for consumers. Because if we don't, it's not just you know, that it's a little bit more expensive. We don't make our environmental goals. While the list of considerations that policymakers need to consider as they try to enable this energy transition is certainly longer than the ones that our panelists noted here, a few things are quite clear from our panel. First, reliability is paramount. Transitioning to a lower carbon economy will be meaningless if the American grid is unable to support its citizens' needs. Second, policymakers and regulators must view the grid as a holistic system with numerous components that need to remain in balance. Third, cost is not simply a means to justify an end result. Rather, the economic burden energy consumers face could make or break the energy transition. 
We appreciate the challenge policymakers have ahead of them, but we know that a well-designed, well-functioning competitive market will allow us to achieve these ambitious and crucial goals while maintaining reliability of the system. Energy Solutions is brought to you by the Electric Power Supply Association. EPSA represents America's competitive power suppliers, which bring about 150,000 megawatts of power generation resources to customers throughout the United States. Discover the power of competition at www.epsa.org.